When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about Nexium. If you aren't familiar with what Nexium is, it is a high-demand, high-control group where the leader was recently convicted of numerous crimes, including sex trafficking and various types of financial fraud. The basis of this episode, to tie it into pop culture, is the HBO documentary called The Vow, which over two seasons follows various members of Nexium or their family members and really demonstrates a lot of the ways in which Nexium exerted this high control, high demand over its followers. And the man at the heart of Nexium, uh, Keith Raniere, is a w- excellent representation of how cult leaders exercise influence over other people. So as I had teased a couple of episodes ago, Uh, I want to talk a little bit about cults and the kind of psychology of them, and I thought that Nexium and the stuff that came out in The Vow is a really good way to kind of get into that. So before we get in, just like big content warning, there is some descriptions of sexual assault, particularly of a minor, and other kind of rough topics, so if that is a sensitive area for you... This could be a good episode to skip, but if you've seen The Vow and were able to handle the content there, it's going to be very similar to the content that I'm talking about here. I'm just going to be going more in depth into the psychological processes. I'm also not going to be able to talk about like every little thing that has happened with Nexium. There's just so much content just covered in The Vow and not to mention the multiple other documentaries that have come out about it. Before I truly jump into talking about why Nexium is a cult, I want to say up top that Nexium members love to say, what is a cult? It can't even be defined. And that is one of the ways in which they have in the past, and some people who are still involved in the organization, that is one of the ways in which they have deflected accusations that the organization is a cult. They say there's no definition of a cult. So to be very specific, I am using the definition of high demand, high control groups. The definition of these types of groups are communities that require their members to be obedient 
to not question the rules, to be subservient and loyal, to avoid relationships outside of the group, the, to encourage polarizing beliefs, and to suppress the authentic versions of the self to maintain their membership in a group. This definition is typically applied to religious groups like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, certain types of like Orthodox religions or certain types of fundamentalist organizations to really illustrate that the group functions to really police each other. And they're the, you know, the term high control, high demand refers to the level of control the group wants to have over an individual's behavior and the level of like attention and resources that are demanded from individuals who join the group. And Nexium, in my understanding of it, meets the criteria for a high demand, high control group. They will say that they do not, right? If you watch the end of the vow where they start to talk about the small group of people who still insist that Keith is innocent and that Nexium is not a cult, they will push back against a lot of this stuff and say that everyone was participating out of their own free will, no one had been manipulated, and that as they are all adults, it is their choice to join a group or not. And that is often a very tricky conversation that comes up around cults, um, when particularly when there are adults involved, right? Because with children, I think we can fall more in this case of like, well, children can't really make decisions for themselves. They can't consent in, in the way that an adult can. So any type of high demand or high control over children is clearly a bad thing because children just like don't have the same type of agency and legally don't have the same type of recourses. But adults, it is very difficult to argue if the adults in the group are joining of their own free will, are participating in the group activities with their own free will, then what right do outsiders have to say that it is bad or should be stopped? The difference with these high control, high demand groups is that people often do not enter the group with full informed consent about what they are entering into. And I think from where I sit, that is the main difference in is this something that should just be allowed without any pushback from other communities or is this something that should be like treated as a, a problem and should be intervened upon. And uh, I give a much more detailed talk about informed consent in my Squid Games episode. So if you want to check that out, I, I go into a lot more detail about what it means to give informed consent and how to... Um, like provide that for people. But for our purposes in this episode, the gist is, of it is just to enter into an arrangement, whether it's a relationship, a like healthcare relationship with a doctor or a mental health professional, like to enter or and some type of experiment for research, the person needs to know everything, including the risks that could come with participating, the benefits that could come with participating, the steps of the things they're going to be participating in and like any expectations of them, right? So like this happens when we get jobs, right? We we want to see what is the job description? What is the salary? What are the benefits? What are the things that I'm going to be asked to do? And are there any like restrictions on this job? Like do I need to be able to lift a certain amount of weight without getting hurt? Do I need to be sitting or standing for long periods of time without getting hurt, right? That is informed consent. And from what I have watched in the vow and read about Nexium, there was not a level of informed consent for the adults who joined into Nexium. 
and that once they were fully integrated into the community to the point where many of them, their entire social circles were in Nexium. They didn't have any other external support. They married people who were in Nexium, although their friends were in Nexium. Their income depended upon Nexium. Many of them didn't have jobs that were outside. They would do things for the company because it was a company as well. Once they got to that point where they're fully ingratiated, then they began to be asked to do things that if they had had informed consent when they first joined the group, they may not have joined, knowing that this was going to be asked of them down the line. So for me, that is the differentiation of should like cults be left alone or not. And I think the fact that people do not have informed consent, and once they have become dependent upon the group for their identity and their social support, they are often asked to do things that they would never have done before, and that could be dangerous to themselves or to others, or be unethical or go against their own moral code, but they are put in positions where because their identity depends upon the group now, to violate the request of the group would be to be excommunicated, and that would be devastating because they have nothing else left. So it is a form of manipulation. It is not just social groups that people join. There are elements of manipulation that make cults very dangerous. So why specifically is Nexium a cult? I pulled from the International Cultic Studies Association, which is a very interesting organization of people who are very passionate about getting people out of cults and stopping cults. It is, I don't know if it's the most professional organization. Like, I don't want to say anything bad about them, um, but they, there is a certain kind of vibe that the International Cultic Studies Association people have. They're very passionate about their work. I, I think many of them have either escaped from cults or know people who are in cults. And so it is definitely like a very personal passion that they have. Um, but it also, I think, is, is, is very noble that they want to help people who, who are in cults. It's just that sometimes that fervor maybe extends to groups that don't quite meet the criteria for cults. But I digress. That's not the function of this episode. But so they have a checklist on their website, which I've linked to in the sources page if you want to look at the whole thing. But I pulled up uh, three examples from their list and uh, ones that I think really do apply to Nexium. So the first uh, one on the checklist that I think really applies to Nexium is that the organization is preoccupied with bringing in new members and or making money. And Nexium was first billed as an executive success program. That was how people first got introduced to it. They had these courses where you could pay for a certain number of days intensive. They would do like 16-day intensives, like these really long courses. But usually people would start with like a weekend or something like that. And you would come and you would learn about kind of like self-help skills that were billed toward making you more successful in whatever your agency was or your your profession. Uh, a lot of the people that show up on The Vow are people who were in creative fields like actresses, directors, things like that. So, I I mean, that might be like kind of a self-select bias there of like the film people are probably more likely to be on the documentary because they're excited to be on a medium that they've worked in. But it did seem like Nexium appealed to a lot of creative people um, or, or just people who were trying to be more successful and kind of meld their personal and professional development that by working on their personal selves, they would become better in their, their organization. So that's how people came into it as executive success programs. 
what eventually happened in the organization was that as you kind of took more classes, there was a lot of pressure to kind of like fully join into the group. And they ended up having this system where you would get this little like silk scarf to go around your neck and different colors meant different things. So it really started to become something where it wasn't just like, oh, I'll drop in and take a weekend class. Like you you were supposed to kind of keep working and building up on the steps. So that's one way that the cult was making more money, right? If you keep building in steps to get to the next level and each of those steps require you to pay for a course, then the cult has a pretty consistent source of money because your members who are already dedicated to your content and curriculum are going to purchase the next like intensive or course that you reveal. This is very similar to the Scientology model where once you uh, reach a certain level of clear or whatever the Scientologists call it, uh, then there's this expectation that you like start all over again and you're supposed to go back through the courses, buying all of the materials again to kind of like keep spending your money within the Scientology system. And I've read or actually listened to a podcast um, about Keith Raniere. Well, it wasn't a podcast about Keith Raniere. It's just a podcast where they talked about Keith Raniere, but they mentioned that Keith Raniere was really influenced by Scientology and he based some of his stuff on the Scientology curriculum. And that is something that I do want to do an episode on in the future, not just Scientology, but to show like the influence that Scientology has had on many other groups. Like Scientology has influenced people from like Charles Manson to like obviously people like Tom Cruise and Leah Remini. Like the amount of groups that are based on either Scientologists who have sparked out on their own or people who like encountered the material and then wanted to adapt it to their own cults. It's crazy. There's a lot of people out there who have adapted their stuff based on Scientology. And so I do want to do an episode about that one day. But Keith Raniere is an example of someone who did base some of his stuff on Scientology. So that's one way that the cult kept money, uh, kept people paying in money is that once you joined, there was incentive to keep buying things. The way that then they kept recruiting people was that once you were in, there was an expectation that you were going to invite multiple people to certain types of classes and try to get them to join as well. And in the first season of The Vow, the way that they described it to me really sounded like a pyramid scheme that basically was like, if you recruited someone, you were, and and they like joined and paid money for the courses, you got like a little bit of money from them. You got like a commission from them. Now, if that person that you recruited then recruited somebody else, they would get a little bit of commission of the person they recruited. And then you would get a little bit of commission, almost like a downline of people that you're recruiting to join Nexium. So not only does that incentivize you to keep people interested and in wanting them to check out Nexium, but it incentivizes you to push more expensive classes and to say, oh, well, you did the eight day intensive. You should do the 16 day intensive. You should come to the like summer long thing. You should come to this and that because the more that they spend, the more money that you at the top of the pyramid get. And from the way that uh, at least one of the members, uh, Sarah Edmondson, I believe, the way that she talked about it was that there was like a lot of pressure to kind of keep that going. And then if you had been in the group long enough and kind of worked your way up, you were expected to open your own center. So Nexium had started, the headquarters was like in, I think, Albany, New York. But there were centers in other places, and Sarah Edmondson had opened one in Canada, and all the people that she recruited to join her center in Canada, she got a little bit of money from, 
And if the people she recruited at that center recruited people, then everybody got a little bit of money from that. So not just preoccupation with like collecting more money from people, but spreading the the cult's like teachings around and recruiting people from new areas. So I think that's pretty clear that Nexium was in a way preoccupied with both bringing in new members and bringing in more money. The next thing off of the checklist is mind-numbing techniques are used to suppress doubt. And this one, there are so many examples in Nexium. If you watch the vow, even if you just watch season one, you will see plenty. But if you watch the vow or some of the other documentaries, you'll see examples of these. But I'm going to focus on three and I'm going to focus on them kind of like an escalating scariness. So the first example is that in several of the scenes where they were talking about seminars, the uh, members who were attending the seminars would be asked to do things like hold a plank position for as long as possible during a seminar or stand for the whole seminar or do other types of like rigorous exercise to kind of like self-discipline or punish themselves. These exercises would often come after you had been attending a seminar for like three or four days. You had eaten very little because they would only serve you like you know, a lunch bag with like a sandwich and a bag of chips. And you were often exhausted because the seminars would be eight, nine, ten hours where you're just like in this room being read lessons out of a binder and being asked to discuss and role play and do all of these things. And you're you're emotionally vulnerable because you're like digging. Uh, a lot of this stuff was about digging up like fears and things that they were avoiding and behaviors that they wanted to change. Like it was kind of like being in therapy on steroids, but it was bad, bad therapy. <laughs> so you take all of those vulnerabilities, right? Being hungry, being tired, just like already being really emotionally vulnerable. And then you make people do things like holding a plank for as long as possible, standing the entire session, running up and down, jump, you know, doing jumping jacks, like just these like physically numbing things. All of that works together to really like zone out the brain and have the person no longer be able to use their full cognitive faculties. Think about like when you get home from a long day of work, regardless of what type of work you do, like even if it's not a physical job, you get home from work, you're already exhausted because you've been using your body and brain all day. Maybe you haven't eaten enough because it's been such a really busy day and you only got to grab like an apple on the way out or a hard boiled egg and you're you're just exhausted and you get home and then what if you get home and you then had to do planks for five minutes and do like pacers up and down your living room? Like, what? You're going to be so exhausted and not able to think about anything. And so when you're, then you're, you're physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted, then they crack into the weird stuff. And they would talk about these modules where, because everything was a module, everything was like a lesson. Then they would crack into their modules that was about weird stuff, like the age of consent. And you're just, you're numbed to it. You're not going to think, wow, this is weird that they call the leader of this executive success program Vanguard and he has a little buddy prefect and they use these weird names and these little silk scarfs you're just like you don't have the cognitive capacity to have those doubts when you're that physically exhausted so those are ways in which mind-numbing techniques are used in I th- I think that's more of like the day-to-day Nexium. like th- those were the classes that like your average Joe member of Nexium would get into the next example is that they talk a lot in the documentary about these midnight volleyball games that Keith would play. And this would this is kind of like a step up. So if the average Joe member of Nexium who kind of casually joins seminars every once in a while may encounter the plank stuff, the 
closer inner circles, because there were definitely many layers of inner circles with Keith, the closer inner circles would get invited to these midnight volleyball games. And these were all the people that like had lived in Albany or had moved to Albany to more fully participate in Nexium. And he would take them all to this community center literally at midnight in the middle of the night, and they would play volleyball. And, you know, I try not to make fun of people's appearances on here, but there's absolutely nothing funnier than watching this, like, very tiny man. Keith Raniere is a very tiny man with one of the worst ponytails I've ever seen in my life and these, like, huge nerdy glasses. And he has sweatbands on and his little volleyball knee pads and he's out there running around and you're watching it and you're like, wow, people really followed this man into, like, a very dangerous situation. It's like, the charisma this man must have had, because when you're just looking at him, he looks like an anthropomorphic turtle that came to life and got stuck in a, a, like a high school volleyball movie. But the purpose of having these midnight volleyball games is now people are exhausted because they've been working all day at your company, at your Nexium company. Then you, they can't go to sleep until the volleyball game comes because it was like an honor to be invited. It meant you were special if Keith invited you to the volleyball game. And then after they would play volleyball, Keith would lecture and he would talk about his like fancy ideas and people would sit at his feet and, and soak in all his words. So at this point, like it's probably two or three o'clock in the morning. You know that you're going to have to wake up at six o'clock in the morning. You're going to get three hours of sleep and you're going to be expected to do it all over again. So by having events be at nighttime, it limits the ability for people to sleep. It highly structures the rest of the day, which gives you not a lot of time to think for yourself. Uh, and then he's interspersing in his little quote unquote nuggets of wisdom. So that's all you're consuming is Keith Ranieri and no other time to think for yourself. Because like if you're running around working for this man and then playing volleyball with him all night and then waking up the next day to do it again, when is the time for you to like journal and think about what you want or just like to watch a TV show or listen to a podcast? Like the, the point of these high demand groups particularly ones like Nexium, are to structure your day in a way where you are all consumed with the group and you have no opportunity to do anything by yourself. And people need time alone. We need, whether you're an extrovert or not, like we need time alone to kind of process what's going on, give our brains a break, like just kind of like recuperate. And you don't get that in these situations. Another thing that he would do kind of very similar to the midnight volleyball is he would ask people to go for walks in the middle of the night to have deep conversations with them, and he would request that they record them. This serves the same function as the volleyball game. It is one, an honor to be asked by the leader to go have one-on-one -on -one time, so you're already kind of like predisposed to listen to everything he says because you've been invited on the special thing. It's in the middle of the night, so it's clearly disrupting your ability to sleep. And I think psychologically, too, kind of communicates, you know, there's an element of like not being safe. Because going out at night is not always, like, the best idea. Particularly in this area, they lived in Albany where there's, like, wildlife, right? It could very easily have been a dangerous situation. But Keith is there to keep you safe. So it reinforces that he is, like, a protector and a safe person. And then he's using these, like, very philosophical questions. And they play quite a few clips from these walking conversations with him. And he would do these things where he would, like, ask a question that, doesn't have an answer or he clearly expected one answer even though that wouldn't have been clear from the question he asked and when the person answered wrong according to him then he would make fun of them 
or put them down in some way and insinuate that, oh, you're not enlightened enough. You're not smart enough to figure out my question and answer it in the way that I want it. Cult leaders do a lot of stuff at nighttime because, again, it disrupts your your sleep schedule. And the recording is something we see in cults a lot. Like uh, Jonestown, they recorded pretty much everything. Um, L. Ron Hubbard has like quite a he didn't record a lot, but he did. Uh, he wrote a lot down. A lot was recorded in writing. Um, I'm trying to think of other cults that have done recording stuff. I mean, Nixon <laughs> recorded himself. Like, there's something about like the narcissism that it requires to be a cult leader, where they believe that every word that they say needs to be recorded, which ultimately becomes the downfall because then you have these records of them saying really horrible things. And if you watch the second season of The Vow, a lot more of that is clear. There are recordings of Keith talking about the age of consent and how it probably shouldn't be 18 and talking about his plans to put brands on women in the group. He also saved a lot of pictures. Like everything had to be recorded and in the moment, like, it is to serve the narcissism of the cult leader, right? They are seeking out uh, validation for who they are and that what they are doing is good work. But it ultimately will lead to your downfall because if you have hundreds of hours recorded of yourself saying things, you're going to say something dumb. <laughs> like, you just are. I-, I can speak very clearly as someone who records herself talking for hours at a time. Like, you're going to say something dumb. And because I don't have a cult and I'm not asking people to save everything that I say, I could delete the things that I think I should say better or aren't meant to be said. Keith did not do that. So that this is a little bit of an aside, but even the recording is a way to really implant into the members that every word that Keith says is so important that it has to be recorded for all time. So you pair that with these night walks or the midnight volleyball, because even the midnight volleyball games, he would have people filming them. Like there's so much footage of this man because he would have these filmmakers who joined his group follow him around with a film crew. So between the recording, the isolating at night, and then disrupting uh, sleep schedules, these all serve to be a mind-numbing technique, which puts the members of the cult in positions where they just don't have the cognitive resources to be able to express their doubts, so doubts become suppressed. Now, the last example of mind-numbing behaviors is, I think, the most extreme, and this was the case of one of the girls who had come to Albany from Mexico. They had joined Nexium because of their family and ultimately were left in Keith's care while the parents um, went back home. It is a long story about how they got there and got to the point where they were left alone with Keith, but ultimately all you need to know is that uh, it was two young girls and their brother who were now being taken care of Nexium and separated from their parents. And so the older sister had been, you know, involved with this kind of inner circle. She she had really been the first one to kind of get in um, before her siblings were brought in, and she was in deep. Like, she was in pretty deep. She was in a situation where she was being asked to do increasingly more things for the organization. Her behavior was pretty extremely restricted. There's a lot of weird eating stuff across Nexium, a lot of restriction. All of that was being applied to her. And 
essentially what happened was that Keith groomed this young woman and initiated a sexual relationship when she turned 18. He, but he had been grooming her up to that point, and literally the day she turned 18, had sex with her. He, uh, I believe he did get her pregnant and then requested that she got an abortion, pressured her into getting an abortion. And eventually she began to develop emotional and romantic feelings for another member of Nexium who was closer to her own age because Keith, Keith was in his 40s doing this with an 18-year-old girl. Uh, she began to develop feelings for somebody else in the in the group and and told Keith in the spirit of, you know, they were supposed to be open and vulnerable and he punished her for it. And one of the ways in which he punished her for it was he locked her in a room for up to two years. It's it's a little iffy on how long she was in there um, because she was in, locked in a room, uh, you know, with no way to get out or way to tell time. Um, she She was locked in a room. Now... To be clear, to be fair, um, per what I read in the doc or watched in the documentary, the door was unlocked, but this demonstrates the amount of psychological control that this group had over this young woman, that she stayed in the room that had the, the windows were covered up. There was no furniture in the room. It was like a mattress on the floor and she was given a notebook and a pencil and she was told to sit in that room and to write to Keith until she had you know, corrected her mistake. And she was kept there in that room for two years. They had, although they didn't lock the room, they had taken her passport and her documentation so that if she were to escape, she would have no way of getting back home. And that was what they did was they had her eat and then they had her write in her notebook these letters to Keith. And if you watch the documentary, you can see some of the letters she wrote. And it is really heartbreaking and really just goes to show, like, truly the level of psychological hold that this group had over her that she was convinced that she had done something so life-threateningly wrong by developing feelings for a peer when this like disgusting old man had been grooming her since she was 16 years old like that is it's it's horrible it's like this is the content warning part right like it's really horrible to think about and from her description of what it was like to be locked in that room you can see how the goal is to numb the mind to the point where the other person squashes all of their personality all of their individuality all of their authenticness and just be like a drone for the group and I think the great lie of Nexium is that they pretended that this was for noble things, right? To be ethical or to adhere to their values. But the reality was is that these punishments were doled out to people who made Keith mad, who hurt his little feelings in some way, and he then lashed out aggressively against anyone and would turn so completely on them. I mean, he went from this, he specifically groomed this girl and her sister and went from them being like his special little child wives to locking her in a room and refusing to speak or interact with her or allow her to even see the outside. Literally all the windows were covered up. That is the extent to how these groups can effectively like brainwash someone to a point where they believe that they deserve this punishment because everyone around them has been reinforcing, this is how we do things. This is how we do things. So again, there's absolutely no 
place for informed consent here because do you think a 16-year-old girl would have joined this group if she was told at the beginning, yeah, this 45-year-old guy is going to want to have sex with you on your 18th birthday and he's going to lock you in a room for two years because you have a crush on another boy. Yeah, she's not going to join, <laughs> right? Like, first of all, she was a child at the time and even if she was 18 at the time, she's going to be like, no, I don't want to do that because I'm here to, I thought I was here to better myself, not here to be a child bride for a maniac. And I, I want to address, like, I think I'm, I, not that I'm being too harsh on Keith. I know that I am being very harsh. I, I tend to, especially in these uh, episodes where I'm talking about toxic men, you know, I try to hold empathy and understanding for how could somebody get here. But in, in the case of Keith Greenery, I don't know if this is just kind of like my bias or my blind spot, but there is just something like very irredeemable about developing an entire organization just to aid in the exploitation of women. And like in my my mind, that's what Nexium boils down to. It, it was an entire organization that became hell bent on doing anything that they could to exploit women, whether it was emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually, sexually, like a, a lot of exploitation of women. And I know that there were men in the group who were exploited as well. And I really, I don't think that's okay either. And I, I think that's really horrible as well. But just the amount of stories of women who are exploited by this group, it's really disgusting. So I have a hard time finding any empathy for Keith Ranieri. And so he would not be a good client for me to work with <laughs> if he were to saunter into my office. Um, but, you know, and I also want to be like transparent about that of like, sometimes we have biases toward people and we need to be aware that our biases toward them may influence the way that we're able to treat them. So in the hypothetical world where Keith Ranieri comes into my office for therapy, I would have to refer him out because I would not be uh, I would not be able to ethically treat him given my opinions about him. But luckily, we don't live in that hypothetical world and Keith Ranieri will not be walking into my office. So I can continue to call him a maniac on this episode. <laughs> so to summarize all of that, the mind numbing techniques included doing planks or exercise after long days of seminars, these midnight volleyball games and midnight walks, um, all the way up to locking someone in a room for up to two years. Now, the third element from the checklist that I think really applies to Nexium is the justification of behaviors that would have been considered unethical before joining. And this one, I think, fits really well with Nexium because the term ethics and ethical breach got, gets thrown around a lot in the organization. And as you... If you watch one of these documentaries, as you watch it, you start to realize like, wow, they really just threw the word ethics around without it really being tied to a specific code. If it was tied to anything, it was tied to what Keith wanted and what bothered Keith or not. And so ethical things became really twisted in Nexium and often involved essentially doing what felt good to the individual or what was asked of the individual by Keith, even if prior to joining Nexium, the person would have been ethically against that action. For example, Keith impregnated at least three women in Nexium and forced them all to get abortions, one of whom was the young woman that he locked in the room. The other one was her sister. And the third one was the daughter of the co-founder of Nexium, Nancy Salzman. 
who was Keith's right-hand woman for many years until she started to get boxed out, and Keith started having sex with her daughter. He got her pregnant and forced her to have an abortion because he told her she wasn't ready to carry his child yet, even though all she wanted was to be able to be a mom. Now, you know the stance of this podcast on abortion is that abortion is healthcare. But any type of healthcare should never be forced on somebody, and in this case, I don't know about all of the women, but I know that at least one of the women did not want to get an abortion, and Keith pressuring her into getting it is, I would say, inherently unethical. And I don't know what these women's opinions were of abortion before they joined Nexium, but it is entirely possible that if they had never joined Nexium, abortion may not have been a reproductive health care decision that they would have made for themselves, whether because of an ethical reason or something else. But they were put in a position because they were in this group where the goalpost for what was ethical has been moved. And now Keith is able to force them into having a healthcare procedure done that they may not have fully consented to. In the case of the woman who was the daughter of the co-founder, she had, um, you know, been asking Keith if they could have a child together because they were in a romantic relationship together. Keith also was in several romantic relationships with different women in the cult for many years and many of them were simultaneous. I don't know. It does not seem like every woman was aware that he was dating all of them together at the same time. Some of them didn't seem to be aware, but either way, those women may not have chosen to be in polyamorous or open relationships prior to joining. It may have violated their own ethics or morals around dating and romantic relationships. And Keith put them in a position where they were asked to go past that. Um, but so this this woman, her name was Lauren. She had been asking to have a child with him and he kept dangling it over her head as kind of like a, if you do this, then maybe I'll consider having a child with you. And if you think about it from her perspective of him being you know, the revered vanguard cult leader, what an honor it would be to have the child of this man. So it is a very coercive thing to hold over someone's head, particularly something like bearing a biological child, which unfortunately has a timer on it. There is an end date to when a woman can give birth to a child. And so he would tell her, oh, you have an ethical breach. And this was a term that was used in Nexium quite a lot. If they if it was determined that you had an ethical breach, your whole mission then was to resolve the ethical breach in whatever way possible. And that seemed to usually mean having sex with Keith in some way, but I think was supposed to be like, you're supposed to cleanse your soul and body and atone for this ethical breach. But again, because the ethics were really based on Keith's whims, then any ethical breach is just whatever Keith decides. This also provides justification for the group members that engage in those unethical behaviors because they can say, well, Keith sanctioned it. This is what Keith wants me to do. If Keith is vanguard, then Keith must be right. And what he is asking me to do must not be wrong. And if I'm having doubts about it, then it must be my fault. So you see how this even plays into the suppressing doubts part, right? It's like, if you don't comply with what Pete, with Pete, <laughs> with what Keith is asking then there is something wrong with you must be unethical. And so those little doubts you have about what he's asking you to do 
are signs that you're an unethical person and must be purged. The most glaring example of how the group justified truly abhorrent behaviors is the way in which Keith groomed the sister of the girl who was locked in the room. So with that girl, the girl he locked in the room, he waited until she turned 18 to have sex with her. Her sister, who was several years younger, he began to groom her when she was 15 and they had sex when she was under the age of 18. And she he groomed her to become his sex slave essentially. Like it wasn't just it was not it was just regular grooming. Like it was intense grooming and he was grooming her to specifically be obedient to him and to enter into some type of kind of pseudo BDSM obedience relationship. He had photos of her as a child, nude photos of her, which is considered child sexual abuse materials. And her sister, her older sister, knew that she was being sexually abused by him. Other people in the group knew that she was being sexually abused by him and sanctioned it. Nobody did anything to get her out. Um, Nobody stepped in to stop this. They went along with it because, well, if Keith is doing it, then it must be ethical and it must be right. And she was in the group for so long that she she did, uh, you know, grow up to become an adult and ended up becoming one of the foundational people in the DOS group, which I will talk about at the end. Any one of those people who joined Nexium prior to joining Nexium would have been able to say, this is wrong, that Keith is grooming a young girl to have sex with her, to specifically to have sex with her. And to then manipulate her into doing the same types of things to other people. Like, I I could say 99% of people would say that that is very wrong, that that is unethical, and that there's no justification for doing that. Once they join Nexium and are in, particularly in that inner circle, then the justification is there. The unethical behaviors can continue, and they're... It, it almost serves as like collateral for everyone in the group because it's like if we're really letting this happen, then we can't let anyone find out what's going on. So all of those three examples, the preoccupied with bringing in new members and making money, um, mind-numbing techniques to suppress doubts, and justification of behaviors that would have been considered unethical before joining, I think all of those support that Nexium is definitely a cult, if not just a high-control, high-demand group. So if Nexium meets these criteria for what a cult is, then it is important to understand the ways in which people join or are recruited to cults. And I pulled some of this from a very interesting Psychology Today article that was written by someone named Dr. Hassan. And he he really lays out these wonderful list of things that make people vulnerable to being recruited. And he's very clear, and I I agree with this, that um, people do not join cults. They are specifically recruited and pressured into joining. And, you know, just like I mentioned with the kind of structure of Nexium, it was to push people into joining. And there really was kind of like a a two levels in, in Nexium. There were people who just kind of like casually joined and attended certain of the seminars, and then there were the people who really went all in. And that level is the cult part, right? The people who just kind of like dropped in and out of um, seminars are not like (laughs) 
they weren't the ones like locking people in rooms and branding each other, right? They're they're not all the way in, and so they're not recruited, right? The 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 cult was very clear about what type of people they were going to recruit. Like the, it was like um, intentional who they would recruit to to go farther in because they you know needed somebody who would be a steady source of income. But you're not going to recruit someone who isn't going to go isn't going to buy in and is going to be weirded out when they have a little orange scarf around their neck and people are starting to talk about this guy's name is Vanguard. And he has sex with 15-year-olds. So in a way, people would join the executive success program, but people were recruited into Nexium. Um, and so things to remember about what can make you vulnerable to being recruited to a, a cult are things like just like what's going on in your life. If, you've, if you're particularly vulnerable, like a relationship has just ended or you've been fired from a job or have recently lost someone, that can make people more vulnerable to being recruited. Uh, interestingly, having a vivid imagination can make someone more likely to be recruited into a cult. Uh, having a learning disorder, uh, having a history of trauma, even if it's not uh, to the point where it would meet p- criteria for PTSD, but having a history of trauma. Um, having substance use problems, that's a great way that cults can get you in because they often will dangle something in front of you like, we can cure you of that or we can help you with that. And then you come in because you're trying to get sober and next thing you know, you're being asked to play volleyball in the middle of the night and you're probably not even sober. So they didn't uh, deliver. Um, being socially isolated, so not having a strong support system, cults can lean really heavy on that because they are offering a built-in social support system, right? You are joining a already formed group where because the entire group is focused on recruiting you, they're all going to be really nice to you and really warm and welcoming and supportive. So social isolation makes people very vulnerable to joining cults. Now, the author of this article also mentioned that like current day, like post-COVID stuff um, could be potential risk factors, like particularly having uh, an over-reliance on the internet uh, for socialization and other things that can can put you at a risk for cults. I think we see this with the QAnon stuff. QAnon, I don't know if it meets the full criteria of a cult because there's not really a centralized leader. I think there are some people who branch off and maybe become cults, but they don't really have like leader. But this idea of like now all of a sudden you're believing that every politician is a pedophile and drinks the blood of babies, like you probably would not have believed that before you got like sucked into this group Q. So I I think that QAnon is like kind of our probably best example of how the kind of COVID internet isolation stuff can be a pipeline into like high control, high demand groups. Um, But I think in general, just like being isolated and really having a reliance on the internet and not having like like in-person relationships contributes to the social isolation, which makes you more vulnerable to being recruited into a cult. So if there's anything to take away from this episode, it is that people do not join cults. They are recruited. People are targeted. The group knows which kind of people that they are trying to go after. And if you don't meet their criteria, they're not going to work very hard to recruit you. So if you find yourself being very actively recruited to join some type of group, whether it is a religious group or a social group or a executive success program, if people are really knocking down your door to get you in this group, you might be being invited to a cult. So maybe just, you know, do a quick Google, check, look around, (laughs) make sure that 
the people are not asking you to do things like cut off your other friends. Um, check to see if the people in that group have friends outside of the group or if their whole world is in the group. Some of these things might be signs that it is not the group for you. So I've covered the ways in which I think Nexium is a cult. I've given you the definition of high demand, high control groups, and talked about the ways in which people get recruited to cults. I'm going to stop this part of the episode here, um, and I'm going to put out part two next week. In part two, I'm going to go into NLP, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming, um, which is the kind of foundation of Nexium. And then I'm going to talk about the second group called DOS that grew out of Nexium that really led to the downfall of Nexium itself. So stay tuned for part two. Thank you for listening all the way through part one, and I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.